I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, what happens when the love of your life leaves you? Rejection is tough enough, but when your heart is broken, the scars go deep, and it can take years to get over. In the daylight hours, I was fine. Um, But in the evening, I would just sort of sit and stare and ruminate over the relationship, ruminate over, well, what if this had happened? Or what if this had happened? Or what if I had said this? Maybe we'd still be together. And later, the death of a marriage, how a painful divorce led to greater understanding and compassion. Back when it happened 10 years ago, I felt betrayed and quit on. And now I really feel as if I see it. And again, not one incident. It's a pattern of behavior over time. Little things that you don't pay attention to might be something to concern yourself with 10, 15, 20 years from now. Heartbreak and divorce, two perspectives on healing and self-discovery. That's coming up on Life Examined. There is nothing so wonderful as falling in love, right? But for many, a romantic relationship has been a mixed blessing. While some endure and succeed, statistically, many relationships have ended in rejection, divorce, or heartbreak. And rarely is the uncoupling actually based on mutual agreement. More often, for one party, a breakup is accompanied by anger, self-recrimination, and pain. A lot of pain. So what's the science behind such suffering? Can a broken heart make us physically ill? And why, despite some level of emotional maturity and understanding, is it so hard to let go? For journalist Todd Martins, the quest to mend a broken heart is personal— Months after his fiancée ended their relationship, Martins was still in despair. So he openly shared his story called Science Can Explain a Broken Heart. Could Science Help Heal Mine? It was published in the Los Angeles Times where he's a staff writer. Todd Martins, welcome to Life Examined. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I know we could probably spend a lot of time talking about why the relationship ended, but I I think we should just jump into the piece itself in which you describe... I think what we could call the symptoms of heartbreak, what you were physically going through and psychologically going through. Um, How would you put words to that? Can you tell us just about what it has felt like at kind of, you know, at at the worst of it all? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And yeah, the relationship ended in November of 2022. We were engaged. We had just moved in together. It was a very sudden, unexpected breakup. And, you know, I think in the... um, I, I thought we had reached a point where, you know, if there was any sort of challenge, you know, we would just tackle it and mm. use that as an opportunity to better communicate. And so things were kind of shocking to me. And um, yeah, so really miss her. And um, I feel nothing but positive feelings toward her. And but in the fir- in the initial few months, I tried to do a lot of things that, you know, you see in self-help books. And I was listening to a ton of self-help audiobooks. I started volunteering at a local museum and uh, I started volunteering at a local theater and uh, created like a board game group with like my local church. And I was just trying really hard to like stay active and meet new people, I, you know, just meet new friends. And because um, all I was doing was talking about her and the relationship mm-hmm. and, you know, and I just wanted to sort of not dwell. But um, I found, you know, I could work OK and I could do my job, you know, and in the daylight hours, I was fine. Um, but in the evening, I would just sort of sit and stare and ruminate over the relationship, ruminate over, well, what if this had happened or what if this had happened or what if I had said this, maybe we'd still be together. Mm. And around June, this was about seven months after uh, the relationship ended. I think that was sort of my lowest point. And what was going on at that point, there wasn't anything that like triggered it. I mean, I think about her, um, you know, all the time. There's always things that remind me of her and us. Um, I'm talking to you like in our anniversary week. So even this week has been a little Mm. difficult, Um, you know, but I think in June, I think in the back of my mind, there was probably always a little bit of hope, even though it was a difficult breakup. There was always a little bit of hope that I would hear from her, that we would reconcile. Um, We had broken up in the past and each one of those felt very final and we had reconciled. So I was just like, you know, we're partners. We'll figure it out. And I think in June, I sort of had this realization of like, well, what if we what if we don't reconcile? <laughs> and, <laughs> and I started to get really depressed and I started to spiral. And I think culturally we sort of, when it comes to a breakup, you know, like we expect, it's like, oh, you, you can be depressed for a few months and then move on. And then, you know, your friends will take you out and you'll rant and rave or cry or whatever you need to do. And then it's out of your system. Mm. <laughs> and, right. 
Right. And that I couldn't keep calling my friends because they were tired of hearing about it. The new friends I was making, I had already warned them out about it. Um, and I was just really desperate to reach out to her and to talk to her. And she has this amazing ability, you know, if I was struggling on a story or if I had anything that I needed advice on, she had this amazing ability to just be like, do this, do this, and you're, you'll be fine. She just really was really good at like distilling things. So I started to feel like, well, I need to hear from her um, or else I'm not going to be okay. And, you know, that wasn't an option at the time. And I started spiraling. I was just really depressed. And at the end of June, I told my therapist, like, you know, I'm like, I wish I could just have a new brain. Mm. <laughs> and mm. at the end of that therapy session, I just kept ruminating over that sentence. I wish I could have a new brain. And I was sitting on the couch and I was crying. And I Googled, you know, like science, brain, heartbreak. And what I discovered, or one of the first things that came up was an op-ed by uh, this researcher, uh, Florence Williams. Mm -hmm. And she wrote a book called Heartbreak, A Personal and Scientific Journey. And her op-ed referenced, you know, two studies in the op-ed or so. And I immediately read those studies. Those studies read to other, led to other studies and so on and so forth. And I just went down this rabbit hole. Um, I downloaded her book and started listening to it as I was reading all these studies. And the science was making sense to me in a way you know, and nothing against all the help, health, self-help books that are out there. The science was making sense to me in a way that, you know, maybe those weren't resonating, mm. you know, because it's sort of like I, I had this habit and I still do it occasionally. Sometimes I fall off the wagon of looking at all of our old photos. And, you know, the science is like, well, you're doing this because you get a dopamine hit. And, you know, because when I look at those photos, I smile and, you know, and I laugh and I remember all the great times. Yeah. And... I mean, I feel depressed when I'm done with that ritual, but during it, I'm like, I feel okay. And the mm. science is like, this is why you feel okay. And so I think at that point, I just shot a quick email to one of our editors and I'm like, I think I'm going to write a story about this. Yeah. And I just gave him the headline, could science heal a broken heart? And he was like, yeah, go for it. Yeah, I was just so struck when you wrote openly just about physically how you were feeling. I mean, I think there was one point where you said you were, you know, sleeping kind of in three hour chunks or that was, and you'd wake up and sleep more i'd hope but that that you were really kind of physically in pain i mean were there moments you s took a step back and said it's incredible that this is like this is what heartbreak can do to a body into a person and a mind absolutely and i think that's what sort of set me on the story you know initially in the story i i did sort of you know talk to other people about their heartbreak other like men and women and, you know, like I met a, a guy and this isn't in the story. We decided not to go this route. But like, the, you know, I met a guy um, who's, you know, 10, 15 years older than me, very accomplished, very successful. Um, you know, and he told me, you know, him and his partner broke up like 10 years ago and they were they divorced. And every single morning, you know, 10 years on, like he still says good morning to the other side of the empty bed. Mm. <laughs> and mm -hmm. and I just started to think, like, is that my future? Um, and maybe it is. Um, but I, I just started to think about that. And that was what sort of set me on the story because like, you know, we don't I don't think we talk about breakups like as how impactful they can be. I think, you know, like, you know, like I think a lot of times, you know, there's a breakup or there's a rebound or, you know, whatever. And we just sort of expect people to like figure it out. You know, like if you see somebody walking down the street or trying or limping and needing help carrying something like you run to them and you help them. Um, but like a breakup also like triggers those same aspects of the brain, you know, but you don't see it, you know, you're just expected to like grin and bear it and tough it out. Um, I think especially if you're a dude, um, you're just expected to like, yeah, figure it out. Yeah. Thank you for, I think, just speaking so honestly about this. And I know that one of the researchers that, that was very impactful to you was someone called Helen Fisher. And yes. Helen Fisher talks about heartbreak and loss in, in, within kind of the frame of, of addiction, which I found really, really interesting. Um, you know, we, we think about being addicted to alcohol or, you know, exercise or whatever, video games, but, but addicted to heartbreak or love, it, it seemed very interesting and provocative. How, how did you make sense of what she was saying? Can you explain that a bit? Yeah, she was one of the first people I reached out to. And Helen, she's with the Kinsey Institute, and her and her peers did a study in 2010 
And, you know, it was sort of a, a study where they took people who, who were heartbroken or divorced, some people who had just been out of a relationship for like a week or two, and some people who were as removed, as far removed as 17 months and, you know, showed them like a picture of their former partner and showed them a picture um, of like a neutral person, you know, just like a stranger on the street, somebody you don't have any feelings good or bad toward. And what she found was, you know, the area in the brain that is most active or are the three areas in the brain that are associated with addictions and associated with, you know, anything from alcohol to heroin, you know, any sort of addiction people have. And, and that really sort of resonated with me because then it was sort of because I was telling her, like, I keep looking at our old photos or like, look, I, I sent a silly I miss you email last night. And she's like, I'll tell you why you did that. Mm. You know, you did that because, you know, you that makes you feel good and it makes you feel like you're connected and your brain is actually like rewarding you for doing that. And, you know, and it was like all the self-help books would say, you know, don't look at old photos, you know, <laughs> like. Mm -hmm. If you break up, you know, just, you know, try not to speak to one another for however long you need to not speak to one another or, you know, or maybe ever. And, and it was sort of like, oh, like, if I start thinking about this, like an addiction, if I start using the language of an addiction, it started to make me feel like I had a little bit more autonomy over it than I had before. And it was sort of like, when I get that craving to reach out and, you know, if you know anything about an, an addiction, you know, you have a craving and that leads to impulsive behavior. So, um, you know, and that leads to that embarrassing email or that embarrassing text, or that leads to going back and looking at all your old photos and reading all your old emails and texts and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. So go ahead. There was a lot of other research that pointed to kind of poor health outcomes for people that go through divorce or breakups. Like, um, there are physiological responses that take place within the immune system and other parts of us that can lead to to getting sick or even worse. Can you can you talk about that a little bit too? Yeah, one of the studies I came across pretty early was by uh, David A. Spara. He's over. He's down a, a psychiatrist, a professor down at University of Arizona, I believe. And he did a study that found that people. He did a study with people who were recently divorced. Um, and it sort of found that people who are divorced have, you know, a shorter life expectancy than people who are, you know, coupled up. Mm. And, and that's sort of initially scared me. And, you know, even though we weren't married at the point yet, um, you know, I think what scared me was I started to think, you know, it's been, you know, 10, 12 months, like, am I shaving years or months off of my life? Yeah. And so I like immediately called him up and asked him that question. And it's a difficult question to answer because there's, an immune response, there's, you know, just health behavioral response, you know, are people picking up bad habits when they're depressed? Um, you know, and, and his study led me with the help of Florence Williams, who I interviewed. Um, she introduced me to Stephen Cole over at UCLA. And, you know, he's done a lot of studies about our uh, immune system. And basically, you know, if your, your body is also going through the sensation like you are registering a breakup as like physical pain, like emotional pain is it's triggering the same aspect of the brain as physical pain. And when that happens, you know, Stephen Cole was talking about how there is an immune response and it's sort of sending out flight or flight messages to your body. Like it's telling your body to create more like white blood cells. Um, but it's, you're creating white blood cells that are, you know, bacteria fighting white, white blood cells, you know, as, as Steve put it, like, it's really good, you know, if like, you know, you're camping and a saber tooth cat runs through the camp and bites you or something, you know, but it's, if you're just missing somebody for a year, year and a half, like it's, it's less great, <laughs> you know, because mm -hmm. it creates a lot of inflammation in your body and that could lead to, um, a lot of diseases that could lead to, uh, you know, diabetes, various um, you know, immune issues, um, it could lead to certain kinds of cancer. Um, you know, so I, I think learning that study also sort of made me feel like I have to be like, I'm going to miss her. I'm going to still love her. Um, but I have to be really intentional about finding a way forward, mm. you know? And so it's like, when I get that sensation of like, I'm just going to go lie down in bed for an hour and be sad. It's like, no, like that's potentially sending bad signals to my body and potentially making me sick. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I need to put on a record or just do something that I find inspiring 
or, you know, I live, I live in Los Angeles. I live near like the Broad Museum. It's like, maybe I'll just go to the Broad for two hours. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, just, I need to like do something that feeds my brain. Well, this is another part of the article and it's one of my favorite guests and writers is Dacher Keltner at UC uh, Berkeley who has written a lot about the power of awe, which ties into Mm -hmm. exactly what you're saying, which is kind of trying to get out of your own small brain often, or small kind of, you know, depressive view of things and exposing yourself to to awe, to beauty, to connection. And um, I know that that was really impactful and helpful for you. you. Can you talk about how you think awe functions within the context of heartbreak? Yeah, and you know, you're, probably honestly a bigger expert on this than I am. So interrupt me and <laughs> feel free, um, you know, but, um, you know, I listened to that episode with Docker and uh, a friend recommended Docker, um, his book shortly after the breakup. And I hesitated to read it because I was like, you know, like the most awe I ever felt was with, within my ex, mm. you know, <laughs> like, um, you know, and Docker talks about moral beauty yep. and just, you know, um, you know, just finding somebody you find inspiring, finding somebody who like inspires curiosity in you. And I'm like, you know, maybe it's just going to make me more depressed. And then maybe it's just going to make me think about her nonstop, even more than I'm doing. Um, but no, I, I really like it because there's sort of, there's science to it, but there's also a little bit of mysticism to it. You know? Yeah. And, you know, as Docker, I think his phrase is something along the lines of, I'm paraphrasing, but it's like feeling of like being in the presence of something that, you know, transcends your understanding of the world. And, you know, that could be, you know, finding inspiration in other humans. That could be like finding inspiration in in nature or connection to nature. It could be visual design, you know, um, it could be spirituality and religion. It could be music. I'm a big music person. Um, You know, so it was just sort of like, oh, like I have to, it's not like I can't, I'm, I, it's not about putting on like a silly movie or sitting around eating comfort food or, you know, drowning your sorrows and whatever substance you want to do that in. Like you really need to find something that inspires your brain and puts your brain to work and just makes you feel like, you know, you're part of like a continuum. You're part of something that's bigger than you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and that was really inspiring. And, you know, had a number of talks with Docker for the story and he was, you know, really helpful. And he's like, it could just be a quote, you know, it could be like a Walt Whitman quote. And, you know, and I started talking about like these Joni Mitchell quotes. I was listening to a lot of Joni Mitchell during the worst of it. And, you know, and, and how those were inspiring me. And, you know, so it was sort of like, you know, you're, you're doing it, like you're searching for awe, like you're, you're trying to find things that inspire you. Mm. Yeah. Were there any other just behaviors or kind of comfort behaviors that you found to be helpful in this process? Yeah, I think, you know, what I started doing is, you know, this is when once I started talking to Docker is when I was like, this is when I'm going to start volunteering at a museum. Mm -hmm. And this is when I'm going to start going to a museum every week. And I go there once a week for like five, six hours and do my volunteer work. And because I live in downtown LA, so it's, you know, there's lots of nature around here. And, you know, I'd go to places like the Huntington and try to connect to nature, but I also really love design and visual design, um, you know, and was, you know, going to a lot of you know, art museums as well yeah. and just trying to lose myself in a painting or, um, you know, sometimes my ex's art I would look at, you know, <laughs> but, um, which I put in the story. Um, but yeah, no, it was, it was really just about trying to like, when those moments come during the day that you start to spiral, um, you know, I think what I, yeah, I think what just came to mind is there was a point where I almost stopped writing the story because I was like, it doesn't have like a nice bow at the end. It's not like, Oh, I'm cured, Mm. you know? And, and I think it was sort of like, no, but the ending of the story has to be like, look, I, I miss her. Um, I love her. She's, if we never talk again and I, and I hope someday we do, but if we never talk again, she's still a a part of me and a part of my life. Um, so knowing all of that, can I still find a way to heal and can I still find a way to find inspiration in the world around me? And I think that's where like, awe is really good because doctors just like, just take 10 minutes, just go outside and, you know, feel the sun on your skin, but like start to really analyze what the sun feels like. Mm Or like look at a reflection of like leaves on the ground and just start to like really lose yourself in those reflections. And, um, you know, when there was the eclipse out here, I just sat on like a bench in downtown and 
just stared at the like the way the leaves and the eclipse <laughs> like mm-hmm. on the sidewalk and just kind of lost myself and you know some of that maybe sounds silly but i think in, in a way i kind of like that about awe you know and that there is sort of a mystery to it mm. and i think some of this gets back to the word connection on so many different levels mm-hmm. um I, as someone else here who's been through plenty of breakups and heartache too i mean there's <laughs> something about reconnecting both with awe and i think just with people and they can't necessarily take the place of a partner but they can fill that bucket to a certain extent like just to be among people that love you and care about you and for you to feel that and give it back to them um i i think that's like an important point here that there are many different ways of connection and of course as i said not one can replace you know the partner but but it sounds like that that's kind of what you were doing in many ways, whether being with friends or starting groups or going to the museum, and that, and that there really is, I think, power in that. I I agree. And I think, you know, like I, I you know, tell my therapist that, you know, the volunteering at like the museum is like the smartest thing I've ever done in like mm-hmm. my life, you know, and it's um, in a way it's sort of like low impact connection, you know, like you're there with some sort of knowledge to impart. Um, so, you know, like there are times where I have like a line of people like around me <laughs> listening to me, like talk about something. And, you know, I, I found like, it's really good because like, you know, if, if we had met in some other setting after about 20 minutes, I'd probably start talking about the breakup. So, like, right. Right. um, you know, but, and obviously we're talking about the breakup, but like, um, you know, just sort of being at the museum and being able to talk about history and like having people and of all ages who are just like looking at you with like wonder. And it's just sort of like, it really gets you out of your headspace for um, a portion of the day. And I come home feeling like really positive and energized and sit down and usually write for a couple hours. Let's talk about the the male perspective here, which I think is really interesting. And 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 I wonder if you feel differently than me, but the way I was maybe taught, we were never taught anything really in terms <laughs> of how to how to deal with a breakup. That's not that's not in the curriculum. But it, the kind of like, you know, buddy wisdom is kind of like shrug it off, you know? Yeah. Like you'll you'll get over it. Go for a walk. Um and and I think this is this is interesting if you think kind of, I don't know, uh, kind of about, you know, what it means to be archetypically male, you know, psychologically and, and what is being fed to us in that way and how men are supposed to be. And I would want to like put quotes around this stuff because I don't believe in this stuff fully, but like, you know, are supposed to be more silent, are supposed to walk it off, are, are not supposed to be as verbal as perhaps we think of as females, right? So I'm just... I know you got a lot of response from men from this article. So I'm just curious how you feel that that your gender factored into this. And I, I take it that corresponds to a lot of the messages you were getting from other men. Yeah, that's something that was really surprising to me. Like, I didn't know how people would react. I didn't know what kind of response I'd get. And I feared I'd get sort of a, you know, like a response like, hey, just get over it, dude, or move on, you know? Right. Um, that, and, and that's sort of the response I expected. But I've, you know... Of the 50, 60 people I've heard from, it surprised me that nine out of 10 of those, like 90% of those people are, are men. Hmm. Um, and, and that sort of surprised me, you know, not that I expected to hear from one gender more than the other, but I didn't expect it to be so overwhelmingly male sort of response. Um, you know, people responding like, hey, I went through a divorce two, three, four or five years ago. I'm still in this. Thanks for like explaining why I'm still in this and, you know, why my brain is like encouraging me to like, dwell on these behaviors, dwell on these moments, um, you know, and I, I think, and I, I've, I've gotten some response from women too, like actually asking me to like chat for a few minutes because of a sort of, you know, it's like, I've never heard a, I haven't heard a man be so like horrible about a breakup and I kind of like want the male perspective. So I've gotten some of those e- emails and requests as well, which have been, you know, really gratifying, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and that was the goal. Like I wanted the story to feel a bit like a diary entry. Like I wanted to reveal some personal things, some embarrassing things. I wanted to respect her privacy, but I wanted to sort of, you know, maybe embarrass myself a little Mm -hmm. and just be really open and honest. And I put some things in there that some friends were like, you know, I wouldn't put them there and I did it anyway. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think one of the important things that you articulated is that A, that yeah, men get wrecked by this stuff, even if it's not expressed openly. And it sounds like you and I are probably in agreement that we wish it could be expressed more openly. 
And that I think it's important that like, there really are no timelines for healing in grief. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I've learned this over and over as a therapist or as a person who's been through heartbreak, but that it's okay for people to say it takes multiple years, you know, like it's just, this is mysterious stuff and we don't, we can't say, yeah, yeah, in six months you'll be fine. It doesn't always work that way. Yeah, I thought it was kind of funny when David Spara over down in Arizona uh, sort of said to me, he's like, you're still within the normative range for adaptation, <laughs> you know, which is, he's like, it could, you know, he's like, we expect like two years, you know, for uh, a difficult separation, um, at least minimum, um, you know, but I think, and there's, and one thing that's sort of interesting though, too, is like, we talked about, you know, the, the potential of like illness and stuff, and there's no like time frame on that, you know, like, there's an overlap with loneliness and, you know, chronic loneliness and how that could affect your immune system, you know, but it could be, you know, six months, a year, it could be, you know, five years, um, you know, just because you're depressed, I don't want to like scare people and be like, you're going to, you're going to get sick. <laughs> um, you know, it, it does take some time for those things to settle in, but yeah. Hmm. Well, is there anything else that, that really has surprised you or that you learned in this process that we haven't gotten to? Um, you know, I think it's it's so important to have these conversations. But what anything else that's been on your mind that that you want to express? Um, you know, I think just this how much like the science in conjunction with therapy has really helped, and how sort of the science, learning the science, helped me identify or better understand even certain behaviors I have and made them feel less abstract. Um, I think of Naomi Eisenberger, who she does, she's at UCLA and she studies um, rejection. And she did a lot of studies about how when you're rejected, the same area of the brain that is triggered is the area that feels physical pain. And she told me that it's like, you know, the mere fear of rejection will trigger that response. Mm. And I thought at this moment early in the relationship, it was like five months into the relationship, um, you know, that I hadn't even talked about in therapy, you know, it was like, we had had like a stressful morning over whatever. And I was walking her to her car after things had calmed down. And I just sort of looked at her and said something along the lines of like, just please don't break up with me, you know? And it was like, and I sort of like how much fear I went into the relationship of being broken up with, of things falling apart and just how that colored, how I communicated, um, you know, and whether or not I advocated or set boundaries or, um, you know, could be like open, honest and authentic about everything, you know, like any sort of conflict, I would sort of, you know, have that fear would come up and um, I would sort of go into people pleasing mode. So and that was stuff like I learned about in therapy and that was stuff I was learning about even during the relationship. Um, but it was it was stuff that like the science was like, here's why you do that. And here's what's happening in your head. I've been joined by Todd Martins, columnist at the Los Angeles Times, and we've been discussing his article, Science Can Explain a Broken Heart. Could Science Help Heal Mine? Todd, thanks so much for sharing your article with us. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you so much for reading and having me on the uh, having me on the program. Coming up, from the science of heartbreak to the psychology of divorce. That's next on Life Examined. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard Todd Martin's open and honest retelling of his breakup and the journey that followed. But what about all the hard work, the successes and failures that go into keeping a relationship together? In his book, This Is How Your Marriage Ends, A Hopeful Approach to Saving Relationships, author and relationship coach Matt Frey shares what he learned from his own divorce and given the chance, what he wishes he could have done differently. Matt Frey, welcome to Life Examined. I really appreciate the invitation. Thank you. You know, I was just reflecting recently on how, you know, two topics that always seem to catch our listeners' ears have to do with happiness or relationships, like those two topics. And it doesn't surprise me because I feel like they're so actually interrelated as well. But um, I, I wonder if that also makes sense to you that, I mean, we're, we're always constantly thinking about how we can both like get better at these relationships and in a sense, make ourselves feel better. Do you know what I mean? I do. Um, I think that contentment 
happiness, whichever word people choose to use, is sort of what most of us are chasing. Mm -hmm. And I operate under the belief that our the quality of our interpersonal relationships is what correlates most closely with the degree of sort of life satisfaction, happiness, contentment we feel. Meaning I don't think there's anything that influences more. Maybe maybe physical health, hmm. um, but um, l l understanding how our interpersonal relationships are impacting the quality of our lives, I think is something not not a lot of us are necessarily thinking about as we move in and out of our you know day to day lives. I I don't think that's top of mind, and I think it's critical that it become top of mind in order to I don't know optimize the most important relationships that hmm. we have. Take us back ten years ago and tell us what was happening in your marriage that would ultimately result in a divorce? Well, it's also unremarkable, which mm. I think is the really scary part of it. And I think that a lot of people can probably relate to that idea. It's the notion that two good people, and, and again, forgive me for the use of the word good, and I don't get to decide right, wrong, good, bad. But, but the, the general idea that like you meet people and they're smart and they're decent and they're, they're not criminals and they're not trying to hurt anybody and they love each other yeah. and they wanna be together. And, and that's most marriages, most relationships. And there's just sort of this like slow death that I think a lot of relationships suffer. And, and, and we often can't point to like one big inciting incident or tipping point. It's like this collection of tiny like micro infractions or, or, or micro betrayals um, and not not betrayal in the traditional way that we think about it. But these little these little moments where a conversation or, a, or, or an incident communicates that, you know, I don't think this person cares about me as much as I want or need them to for this relationship mm. to succeed. And I don't know, there's an imbalance there sometimes. In my case, it was me to my wife. It was, I, I perceive myself in hindsight to have been the person that most often communicated unintentionally, I matter more to me than you do, wife. Mm -hmm. So like, I understand why somebody would pull away. Mm -hmm. um, but back when I was in the midst of it, I did not view these, again, so-called like, microtransactions, these tiny betrayals, these, these things that seem so minor, so small, as being legitimate threats to my marriage, my family. Mm. I want to get back to that in just one second. But one thing that caught my attention, and I've noticed this a lot as a therapist, is just that it's almost easier if we can come up with one very simple explanation, or there was this one moment, or this one fight, or this one difference that really tore us apart. But I that's almost too simple oftentimes as an answer. It doesn't always exist. I think what you're talking about is just a, a more realistic, nuanced way of understanding relationships. I think it's so difficult to describe for people, and I think it's so difficult for people to um, pinpoint what the problem is. Hmm. And, and, and I mean, I think that I have. I think that I, I think that I understand at least my story in a way that articulates fairly what happened to my wife and the reasons why she felt unloved and disrespected and not cared for. And in my estimation, 10 years later, made a healthy decision to remove herself from it, to enforce healthy personal boundaries and say, this is not what I thought I was being promised, you know, mm. when I said I do, um, you know, I no longer agree to this arrangement. And back when it happened 10 years ago, I felt betrayed and quit on. And now I, I really feel as if I see it. And again, it, the, not one incident, it's a, a pattern of behavior over time yeah. that I think presents so small that it doesn't appear dangerous, it doesn't appear scary. When, when two people are 25 and they're just getting to know each other and, and these little things pop up in month two or even year two of being together, I don't think either of them say to themselves, 15 years from now, we're not going to be together, and this is why. Yeah. And that, that to me, is, is a real problem. I'm trying to sort of like sound the alarm and say, hey, little things that you do every day that you don't pay attention to might be something to concern yourself with if you want to feel healthy and contentment and togetherness 10, 15, 20 years from now. Can you give me some examples of maybe those little micro transactions that you wish you could do over again or ways that you felt that maybe you were creating a bad pattern? Um, I focus on two ideas. They are, I call them habits because I really want people to um, stop feeling defensive when their relationship partner tries to communicate a problem. 
most of the time the partner is not saying you're this horrible person doing these horrible things to me most of the time they're saying hey i'm having a problem and i'm trying to recruit you to help me with it and that doesn't go very well hmm. and i posit that a relationship a healthy relationship should be comprised of two people who can comfortably and confidently tell the other that they're having a problem and then have the other person respond in a manner that suggests, hey, I love you, I care, I need to get this, you can count on me to like have your back on this subject. Even if I don't think and feel about it the same way you do, you can trust me to have your back. I, that's not what I did. Mm. I spent all of my time trying to convince my wife she should think and feel more closely to the way I thought and felt and then everything would be fine. That's, well. that, was my, that was my MO. And so, and that leads me to the thing that I think most relationships consist of, some degree of, of just this thing I call the invalidation triple threat. The three ways that I believe people routinely, habitually invalidate their relationship partners in these little conversations, where somebody's just trying to say, hey, I'm having a problem, something's wrong. And then there's these sort of three responses that I think so often emerge and they communicate over time, hey, you can't count on me. If if you're having a problem and I don't agree that it's a problem, it's not going to go well for you moving forward. That's what I inadvertently communicated to my wife. Mm -hmm. So here are the three ways. Um, I always tell this in the first person because I think it's the easiest way to hear it. Um, my wife would come to me and she'd say something was wrong. And then I would always respond in one of three ways. I would I would disagree that the problem actually existed as she says it does. Right. So she would say, hey, this incident happened and I feel really bad about it. And I would disagree that the incident played out as she said, I just fundamentally disagreed with her interpretation of it. And so I would challenge whatever she was thinking or whatever she believed. And I think this happens all the time in disagreements between two people. Um, the second way that I would disagree with my wife would not be about what she thought or what she believed, but what she felt. So she'd say, Hey, Matt, a bad thing happened to me, I'm having a problem. And I would agree that the incident occurred, but I would disagree that she should feel hmm. the way she does about it. It didn't make sense to me that she was having such big emotions about something I felt was a relatively minor incident. So this time your brain's not wrong, but your feelings are wrong. There's something wrong with your emotional calibration. You're, you're being hypersensitive, dramatic, overreacting, something like that. And then I think the third way we consistently invalidate people when we disagree with something that they're saying or feeling is we just get defensive. Hey, Matt, you did something. It hurt me. And I'm like, wait a minute, let me explain. If, if you hear me out and understand what I was thinking, feeling, intending to do, I won't be the bad guy. You won't be mad at me anymore. And what all three of these response patterns communicate is if what you think and feel is divergent from what I think and feel, I choose me over you. Over and over again, if you're having a problem, something bad's happening to you, and you're trying to get me to help you with it, if, if I don't agree with like the premise, you can't trust me to show up for you tomorrow in a way that feels safe, in a way that feels trustworthy. And that is what I communicated to my wife repeatedly in our relationship and what I think the vast majority of people I encounter in my work are doing. They don't literally believe their spouse is stupid or crazy or weak or hypersensitive. They don't believe that everything they think and feel is superior to everything their relationship partner thinks and feels, not philosophically, but their behavior does communicate that. When push comes to shove and you and I are on opposite sides of an issue, I choose me over you. Mm. And that in a nutshell is what I did to my wife over and over again. I think, I think the simplest way for people to think about it is we don't have successful conversations when we don't think somebody should believe or feel the things that they do because it conflicts with something we think or feel mm -hmm. because it requires some change on our part. Um, and we resist that um, even with the people we love the most. Yeah. No, those are really powerful examples. And I think if we take the position of, let's say it was your spouse and it's a place I think we've all been before, the feeling of, of having those kind of three principles being applied to us is I think it creates a feeling that, that we are invisible, that what we feel or the way we understand a situation does not exist. I think it's isolating. It can be depressing. And I think, right, it creates a tremendous pattern of resentment long term. Yes, sir. I, I, I learned the phrase somewhere along the way that I left my wife alone in our marriage. And, and what I think that means and it's, it's really just piggybacking off what you just said. If I only love and support my wife when we're in harmony, when we're in agreement about what's going on in the world, 
I mean, that's, that's fine during those times, but, but if she can't trust me to have her back when I don't think or don't feel about the world the same way, um, that is, it, it suggests you're on your own. It communicates, sorry, if I don't agree the problem's a problem, then you're on your own to deal with it. And yes, I, I believe that makes somebody feel incredibly invisible. Yeah. And, and so continuing with the original question about, <clears throat> about these sort of like nuanced things that impact relationships, I, I only have one other. The, the other idea that I coach about with my clients falls under the umbrella of this word consideration. Um, it is, I have not thought of a better word or, or encountered a better word yet. It is this idea that when I make decisions, my relationship partner is both accounted for, included in my decisions, and, and, and calculated for, meaning I make decisions that, that calculate for how, you know, she or he will experience it. And I think the best example from my work, the one that's easiest to talk about at least, is, is this viral article that I wrote in 2016 and that I included as a subchapter in the book called She Divorced Me Because I Left Dishes by the Sink. And that became incredibly popular. And there was a, a you know, ton of people, thousands of people that were like, Matt, this is, this is really good. This like really helps me get it. And, and this is dynamics going on in our relationship. But there were a bunch of people, mostly men, if I'm gonna be frank about it, who came back at me and they said, Matt, they said, okay, so you wanted to leave this drinking glass by the sink because it felt inefficient to you to, you know, put one in the dishwasher or to hand wash it each and every time you used it. They're like, I get that, you know, maybe I feel the same way about certain things in my life. But it sounds to me like you're advocating for your wife's position and saying you were unable to have a happy marriage. You were unable to be a good husband because you didn't agree to do things your wife's way because her wants and her needs had to outweigh yours in order for you to have a healthy, happy marriage. Is that what you're saying, Matt? And I didn't know how to respond to that in 2016. I didn't know the answer, like the, the, an appropriate way to sort of like retort that because I agree with the idea that my feelings and my preferences, my wants and needs relationally are equally valid to my wife's. And I never want to communicate through my work or otherwise that I think one partner's wants and needs should, should always universally trump the others. Mm. I definitely don't think that. But here's the best way I know how to explain it. And I have to focus on this idea of pain. And, and you know, you just alluded to it. When we invalidate repeatedly, somebody feels alone, somebody feels sad, somebody feels left behind, unloved and not cared for, it hurts. This lack of consideration in a relationship hurts. So when I left the dish by the sink, the glass of water by the sink that I would use to take, you know, medicine, vitamins in the morning, things like that. Here's how I tell the story today. When I would walk in the kitchen and the glass was not by the sink, the way that my wife preferred it, it means I had to go into the cabinet to get a new one or reach into the dishwasher to get one. And all I can say is I never felt pain whenever that happened. Mm. I, I did not feel hurt, fair or not, for better or worse, whatever. I didn't feel pain. When my wife walked in the kitchen, not in week two, not in month two, not in year two of our marriage, but in year six, seven, eight, she hurt when she saw the glass there because the glass sitting there was a piece of evidence that could mean one of two things. The first thing it could mean is that I left it there because I don't really care how she feels because I'm going to do what I want. And I, you know, she's of little concern to me. I choose me over her. It could mean that. That to me is the scariest thing it could mean in the context of love and care in a relationship. Mm. The second thing it could mean is that I left it there with little to no thought of her at all. I, I didn't sort of leave it there mindfully saying, I don't really care how she feels. I left it there completely thoughtlessly, like my wife wasn't included. She wasn't accounted for in my decision to leave the glass there. She was completely forgotten about an afterthought. I left the glass there to rush out the door with just no regard for what would happen inside of her head and heart when she walked in the kitchen to find it. And so again, every time she walks in and she sees the glass by the sink, I'm inadvertently communicating one of two ideas. Intentionally, I choose me over you because I don't care about you or unintentionally, thoughtlessly, I choose me over you because you weren't important enough to remember. Mm -hmm. You weren't important enough to, to, to mindfully consider like how you would experience this moment when you walked in. And, you know, I don't know how people listening to this are going to feel about that idea, but I, I truly believe it is the single most important idea in relationships in the context of 
maintaining trust and intimacy and connection and safety and these really subtle but critical ideas for relationships to last. Mm. I have to be able to predict with some measure of accuracy how my relationship partner is going to experience something. And I, I can't forget. I, I mean, I can do it by accident when I'm just getting to know her, when we're just establishing like a life pattern together. But after eight, nine, 10, 20 years together, if I demonstrate no regard for how someone else is going to experience this thing I'm doing, no matter how benign or innocent I perceive it to be, I understand today why I can't be trusted to be in that relationship. Yeah. And back then I thought she was overreacting. It, it's so funny as I sit here and just kind of react just as a person who's been married before, has been in relationships. It, it's amazing to me still how things that we think of as so mundane, right? A glass by the sink, the laundry, whatever it is, become these symbols of a marriage or a feeling unloved or a feeling unseen. And I think anybody listening who's been in these relationships can can kind of understand that. And I think it speaks to this point that you're making, which is that like, hey, these little things need to be attended to. It's it's not actually like part of you wants to laugh. Oh my God, Matt, it's just a cup or a glass. But like, it's not. That's the point here that I think you're really making. And it's an important one. Thank you. I uh, I really think so. And, and, and I do, you know, you still sometimes get a little pushback on it. I've taken to embracing um, food allergy analogies as my, um, my sort of go-to. Um, I like to talk about a scenario in which I invite 10 friends over for a dinner party. And I'm going to make this like delicious Thai dish that's got peanut sauce on it. Um, and it turns out one of my guests has a, a, a severe peanut allergy. It's potentially fatal. But I didn't know that. When I was preparing the dish, it was just kind of careless of me to to not consider food allergies, right? Nobody's going to be mad, but I'm going to leave somebody out. You know, somebody either is not going to come over, or they're going to have to, you know, do like jump through hoops in order to like have something else that's good for them. But like, how many more times do I have to invite that same group of people over with that same person who can't who can't ingest peanuts without getting severely sick or potentially dying? How many times do they have to come over where, say, I set out on the bar uh, a bowl of mixed nuts or, you know, I serving something with peanut butter or anything over and over again? I, I do this innocent, totally like benign action in most life applications. Like nobody would perceive that to be evil or bad or harmful. But this person, what, after the second strike? Certainly the third is going to say, okay, this Matt has no respect for me. I can't, I don't know how many times you have to have this conversation. Like this guy either wants me dead or thinks so little of me that he, he doesn't care that I can't be part of these activities anymore. We're not hanging out. Mm. And then, you know, I don't have a friend and or relationship partner, depending on who it is. Insert any family member, child. To me, it's the same with the glass. And it's so easy, I think, to like embrace or, or, or understand if somebody does this, they'll get hurt physically, they'll get sick physically. And I think it's much more difficult, and you probably can explain this infinitely better than I can, look why it's so difficult. But it's, I think it's more difficult to sort of respect, to feel empathy and compassion for these nuanced emotional experiences that, that are foreign to us. Mm. You know, a, eating a peanut and getting sick is foreign to me, but it's not difficult for me to understand in the year 2023 that it's peanuts are poison to certain people. It is a lot more difficult for me to wrap my head around how a particular situation made somebody feel really angry or really sad or really afraid when, when my sort of default reaction is, why, why would you think or feel those things? But today I understand if I dishonor that lived experience they have, and it doesn't make me a bad person, but I think it makes me somebody they, they can't necessarily trust yeah. in, in a relationship. And so it becomes about mindfulness and it becomes about making decisions about how much responsibility we're going to take for the experiences of others. You know, I was, I was driving with somebody recently and, and we were talking about divorce and he said something to the extent of, if only I knew like what I know now, I think I could have kept that marriage together. And I think that's something you said at the beginning of this interview. It's like, you almost have to go through this this kind of extraordinary traumatic uncoupling to learn the lessons you wish you would have had earlier on. And I guess, do you feel you're there now that 
you maybe now have the skills or the perspective that, that maybe could have kept a relationship together? Yeah, I think so. I also would like to say I think it's really easy um, by comparison to maintain a relationship from day one, having this vocabulary, having this this language um, versus the repair process. Mm. You know, 10, 15, 20 years of, of, of pain points built up create trauma and, 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 and healing and repair requires, you know, a lot, a lot of work from both sides, a lot of vulnerability from both sides and, and, and one or both partners might not be willing to do that work for one reason or another. Um, I think it's so easy for people that are starting from scratch with one another to sort of maintain this like healthy connection to not let themselves drift too far apart. When you become effective at repair, <laughs> excuse me, you know, the, the, the glass by the sink, like, um, or maybe a better example would be the peanuts. So, right, my friend comes over and I, I, oh, I nearly accidentally poison them. And now I would say, hey, hey, I'm really sorry. I had no idea that this impacted you. Or you told me about this once and I completely forgot. It was really thoughtless of me. Here's the thing you can be certain of, never again. <laughs> when you come over, we're not gonna have peanuts and we're not gonna be serving dishes that might kill you or sicken you. And that to me is what effective repair would look like. No hard feelings, no trust erosion. And then the next time that person comes over as a guest, he or she experiences exactly what I'd promised because I would never be so careless with their well-being. Um, can we apply that principally to these nuanced emotional experiences? So many of us have a difficult time with that. I certainly did for the majority of my life. But once I was able to link like that concept with the end of my marriage, which was the worst thing that I had ever experienced personally, it became very easy for me to say, okay, it's so easy for me to choose putting in a little bit more relational work uh, and inconveniencing myself with somebody who I don't think and feel the same, you know, about this situation as they do. I'm willing to do that work because the consequence of not doing it is slow disconnection and breakage. Yeah. I've been speaking with Matt Frey, relationship coach and author of This Is How Your Marriage Ends, a hopeful approach to saving relationships. Matt, thanks for sharing just all the things you've been thinking about and experiencing over these years. I really appreciate it. I'm so grateful for your interest and your time. Thank you for inviting me on. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can connect with me directly on Instagram. I'm at Jonathan W. Bastian. You can also find our show on Facebook. Thanks so much for joining us here on Life Examined. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you soon.